Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. I wanted to start off and just kind of ask us, how many of you guys know what a Salvatore is? Can, can you raise your hand if you know what that is? A Salvatore? Okay, it's a French word. It, it is not the game, okay? This is where something like, I, I know that, uh, but it, it is not the game, even though it is a game. But I am not referring to that uh, this evening. And so I want to kind of give a definition because we're going to start off with this. We're going to have an opportunity to do an assessment. One of the reasons why we're not changing is we don't know ourselves. The more you know yourself, the more you can depend on God, trust in God, and experience transformation. And the reason why many of us who are, many of you are young, you're, you're in college or a single adult, and you're still trying to discover who you are. This is the reason why we go up and down a lot of times. But the more mature you become as a person, not spiritually necessarily, but as a person, the more you understand who you are and the truth of God's word begins to illuminate into your life, that's where genuine change will begin to happen as you take the steps of faith. So I'm going to define for you, according to the Collins Dictionary, what a saboteur is. Is simply a person who deliberately damages or destroys things in order to weaken an enemy or to make a protest. Now, there's a website, vocabulary.com, defines it in this way. A person who makes a mess of a situation on purpose or a person who deliberately destroys or obstructs something. So when you think about a saboteur, you don't think of them in a very likely or a very kind manner. As soon as you think about a saboteur, the first thing that should cross your mind is an enemy, somebody that you do not like, somebody who is against you, somebody who is trying to stop you or hinder you from doing the things that you know that are right or things that you want to do. That's why we just don't like them. If you understand what their motives are, and why they're doing what they're doing. Some of you have experienced that even in the workplace where you thought that they were your friend or they were trying to befriend you, but you realized they were trying to sabotage just what you're doing so they could receive credit. Some of you will see that in the, even at school, you'll see people trying to compete for different things. I mean, this crazy stuff that there were times when they would go to the library, take the book that is required for that book, and they would rip out the pages so no one else can study. That's what we call a saboteur in its highest form. Now you don't do that because that's back in the day, but now everything's on the web. You can get it directly from the professors. But what if I told you that some of the worst saboteurs are sitting right here in this room? It's you, it's me, it's us. We are the ones who deliberately destroy damage things that God is trying to do in our lives. We are the ones who are really actually fighting God, especially when He is trying to bring freedom into our lives. Because we talked about this. He promised us in John 10, 10, that He came to give life and to give it abundantly. And so here we are sitting in this moment, and when we honestly think about who is sabotaging our, our future, our destiny, a lot of it, we have to confess, is ourselves. 
And I think for many of us, we have a lot of things in our lives that's sabotaging and destroying and damaging the things that God wants to give unto us. So in order for us to identify what those things are, we're going to do an assessment. Everyone turn to someone next to you and say, we're going to take an assessment. Uh, this assessment was produced by this organization, this company called Positive Intelligence. And they believe that we all have self-sabotaging uh, ways that we kind of respond to things. And until we begin to identify what those things are, we're not going to be able to address them, nor are we going to live to our full potential. This is what they state on their website. It says this. Saboteurs are the voices in your head that generate negative emotions in the way you handle life's everyday challenges. They represent automated patterns in your mind of how to think, feel, and respond. They cause all of your stress, anxiety, self-doubt, frustrations, restlessness, and unhappiness. They sabotage your performance, well-being, and relationships. So what they believe is that all of us have learned some patterns and some behavioral responses to things. Pretty much, if you want to look at it, we use that word trigger a lot. Things trigger us. And because of that, that constantly get us down to that road that leads to sabotaging the very thing, the good thing that God is trying to do. So once again, you are your worst enemy as you're sitting here this evening. They also believe that the origin of the saboteurs come from our family, which we have been always saying. Your family background, the wounds from the past. They also mentioned that those who took care of us have also impacted us. That's why friends and extended family, some of those people have some shaping in our lives. And, and I, I want to just encourage us, no matter how much you want to run away from your family background, it is very difficult, unless by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why whenever we do premarital counseling, my wife and I, or anyone who comes up to me asking about relationships, one of the first things that I always look at is your family background. Because you are who you are, apart from the grace of God, because of your family. And a lot of the future issues that you're going to face in your relationship comes from the things and the patterns that you've learned from your family. And if it comes from both families that have very dysfunctional, you come together. I'm telling you right now, you are going to mess up each other, and it's going to be very discouraging. That's why some people are like, why can't we be in a relationship? Well, get your life together. Grow up. Stop being a little kid. And that's why some of us, we're totally blinded because we don't see the immaturity in our lives. This is the reason why we keep on emphasizing discipleship. This is the reason why we keep on trying to help you in exposing the areas of your life so that God's grace and His love can help you to grow. So then you attach yourself to unhealthy relationships. You attach yourself to so many unhealthy things, which then puts you more in bondage, more in addiction. And then you go through this cycle over and over again, and you sit there and wonder, why am I not transforming? Why is my life the same way? So listen to what it says as they continue on their website. It says this, saboteurs start off as our guardians, so it could be our parents or other people who took care of us, to help us survive the real imagined threats to our physical, emotional survival as children. By the time we are adults, we, are no longer, we no longer need them 
but they have become invisible inhabitants of our mind. Our, our saboteurs, patterns of thinking, feeling, and reacting become soft-coded in our brain through neural uh, pathways. When these neural pathways are triggered, we are hijacked by our saboteurs and instantly feel, think, and act using their patterns. This is true. This is a secular website, secular company, but they're speaking biblical truth. That's why I believe all truth that's out there are biblical truth, because the Bible talks about this. So what we want to do is we're going to take this test that they made to help us to understand what are the different saboteurs in our lives. What trips us up? What messes us up? So what we're going to do is this test is going to take, it took me about five and a half some minutes, but understanding that some of us, English is not our first language. Some of us, uh, unless there's numbers, we cannot figure things out. Uh, so what we're going to try to encourage you to do is try to take it as quickly as possible, but yet thoughtfully as possible. So I'm going to give you seven to eight minutes to do this. There's some things you need to keep in mind. So before you start downloading and doing all this stuff so you need to pay attention and listen to me this is this is when when those fun teachers will say okay we're going to follow instructions and then they add something and they're really crazy and then no one follows it, and then he proves that no one follows instructions you know those are the crazy teachers so you need to follow instruction i'm not going to do that i'm not going to pull a fast one on you so just listen carefully we're going to have you go to a website that's the first thing we're going to have you do and we're not going to i'm going to give you instructions first so you need to pay attention we're going to have you go to a website, and then there's going to be some clicking where you have to then say, I'm going to take this assessment. Once you take this assessment, there are 50 questions. Like I said, it might seem overwhelming, but it will go fast. There are some phrases in there that you might not know. You can go ahead and look up the dictionary, you know, Google. I know a lot of people, even during meetings, they look up words because they don't understand what that means. That's respectable. Don't just assume anything. They're going to go from a range of strongly disagree to strongly agree. And then there's going to be three marks in between. So strongly agree, disagree, strongly disagree, neutral, and these two that's right here. Now, in order for this to become helpful to you, you do not want to keep on putting neutral. Are you with me? Then everything's going to be salvatore. You're just sabotage in general. Do not put neutral unless it's something that you're like, I'm not really sure. I would also say be a little bit on the strongly agree or disagree. Because once again, the more clear you are and the more you are exact that this is who I am, I see this, then the better results will happen. Now, there will be times when there is strongly agree and then neutral. And you're like, yeah, I see it sometimes. Most of the time you could put that. But once again, the more you put it on the two extremes, the better the score will be so you will have greater understanding. So avoid the neutral and possibly avoid some of them in between and try to go one way or another. Another thing that we're going to have you do at the end is that, as you know, this is a, a company, so they want to collect data. So if some of you are very into this high privacy and, you know, all that, then you're just going to have to miss the first 20 minutes of our, our, our time together. But I want to just highly encourage you to, this is the thing. Don't, do not raise your hand because you're going to look really bad. 
How many of you have multiple Instagram accounts? Come on now. You know what I'm talking about. The one that's for your friends, the one that's for your mom and parents who can see you, the one for, you know, checking out stuff. You know, we have a lot of different accounts, okay? So we're just being honest here. And so in that way, I'm hoping that many of, many of you have different email accounts. I have about four or five. And some of them are just from newsletters or whatever. The other one is for like signing up for things. And so I don't really check it that much. So I have different email accounts. I'm hoping that all of you have at least a couple email accounts. If there's one that you don't use very much or use it for all these like junk mail or spam, then that's the one that you want to sign up and do this test with. After you do that, they're going to ask you some information. Like I said, they were trying to collect data. Who's taking the test? Uh, what, what organization, like company are you working for? And they want to find out so they could use it later on for their own advantage or to help advance some of their studies. So if you feel uncomfortable, you could just kind of leave it as it is. But I would say that I think they use that to also calculate the, the findings. So the more honest and direct you are, I think it will help. After you take this test and you put your email in there, it will take roughly 10 minutes to get the results. You can see these guys in the background. They're trying to calculate for you. <laughs> no, it's the AI. But they're going to send the results to you via that email. So don't put, uh, don't put like, Shalom Bao and then add whatever. Because, I mean, I'm sure someone has it. But it's important that you get that email, you have access to that email, and then you check the results. So what I'm going to have you do is after you take the exam, or the, not exam, that sounds really school, academic, academic, after you take the assessment, because we have to wait 10 minutes, we're going to have you turn to a couple people around you and answer some questions. It's going to be like a mini huddle group. As you're talking together, as you're discussing, and then the results will come in. And then we were going to look at it. I'm going to give you a time of reflection to look through the results, read through all the stuff. This is pretty extensive. They have characteristic traits, your emotions, your thought patterns. I mean, it, it's, it's pretty decent. You know, when I first looked at it, I'm like, oh, this isn't bad. We need to come up with something like this. You know, so I was like, this is not bad. So you need to reflect on it. So we'll give you some reflection time, and I'm going to lead you into that time. So once again, we're going to direct you to a website. You're going to answer some questions. You're going to then do the 50 questions and then at the end give some information about yourself so that they can send this results to you. We're going to have you get into huddle groups and talk about a couple questions as we're waiting for the results. And then I'm going to have you come back and then I'm going to share a couple things and then we're going to give you a time of reflection. And this is where I believe that the Word of God, once you understand yourself, will be able to speak to your heart tonight and there will be genuine transformation, the work of God only God can do. All right, so turn to that person next to you once again and say, did you get it? All right, did you get it? All right, okay. So there are nine salvators that we have, right? Okay, the first one is the avoider. It's a person focusing on the positive and the pleasant in an extreme way, avoiding difficult and unpleasant pleasant tasks and conflicts. So some of you, this might be really high on your list, one of your top three. You avoid things because you don't like those difficult conversations or the confrontations and things like that. Another one is this, the controller. 
is an anxiety-based need to take charge and control situations and people's actions to one's own will. It's high anxiety and impatience when that is not possible. And so especially midterms, finals, those of you who are students, this might be you. Those of us who are at work, this may also be you. Even relationships with people, when they don't do things that you want them to do. So you might be a very high controller. Another one that you will see here is hyperachiever, dependent on constant performance and achievement for self-respect and self-validation. Latest achievement quickly discounted, needing more. So you're constantly doing more. I don't know why you guys join so many societies. Why? As if you have to find some validations. Why do you do all the things that you do? Because you think that it's so dependent on jobs. And what's ironic is as you do all these things and you can't find a job after you graduate. Maybe God's trying to help you not to be so controlling or putting your value and worth on things that you achieve. Something to think about. Okay. Next. Hyper-rational. Intense and exclusive focus on the rational processing of everything, including relationships, can be perceived as uncaring, unfeeling, or intellectually arrogant. Bad. Next. That was one of my high ones. I'm really sorry. If I affected you or hurt you, didn't seem like I cared. That was me. Sorry. Hypervigilant. Continuous, intense anxiety about all the dangers and what could go wrong. Vigilance that can never rest. So you're constantly going through it. All right, next. Pleaser. Indirectly tries to gain acceptance and affection by helping, pleasing, rescuing, or flattering others. Loses sight of own needs and becomes resentful as a result. Mm-hmm. Now that we covered almost most of our church, we still have about three more. Hold on. We'll, we'll get every single one of you, okay? They're like, none of those things apply to me. Just wait, hold on. Next one. Restless. Constantly in search of greater excitement in the next activity or constant busyness. Rarely at peace or content with the current activity. It's a longing for purpose and trying to figure out what God is calling you to. Next. Stickler, perfectionism, and need for order, and organization taken too far. Like every single minute has to be accounted for. Holy Jesus, come on now. Anxious, trying to make too many things perfect. I think there's one more. Yes. The victim, emotional and temperamental as a way to gain attention and affection. An extreme focus on internal feelings, particularly painful ones. You martyr, you. <laughs> you have a martyr streak. I think that's it, right? Did, did you guys all receive it yet? Go ahead and open it up. Click onto it. Look it up. Read your first three. It's going to be pretty extensive. I want to give you at least a good five to six minutes to reflect as you're reading it. And then there's going to be some questions up there. So turn to that person that you already turned to before and go ahead and do that. Can you put those questions up there? As you're doing that, uh, let me just go ahead and jump right into this. I think as I've been talking with some of you and also just kind of hearing from the grapevine and also just kind of thinking through this for myself, 
I'm realizing that there are many of us who are going through a lot of different emotions through this 50 day of freedom. If you remember, we really hyped this up because we felt like this was so important to our spiritual life and to the health of our church. This was another reason why we were trying to get everyone on board and prepared to go through these 50 days. And as we have gone through over a little bit, uh, over half of this journey, one of the things that we're slowly realizing is that there are many of us who might be feeling a little bit cynical because you're thinking to yourself, okay, I thought there was going to be this, but it's not. And that also leads to this uh, discouragement. Like I'm still wrestling, I'm still struggling with some of these things that I've been in bondage to, and I cannot do anything about it. And that's why some of us, instead of being excited as we're in this 50 days, some of us are just like, I can't wait until we're done with this so we don't have to talk about this anymore. I think some of us have already passed that stage and you're very apathetic. And no matter what God is trying to do because of your cynicism, lack of faith, or your apathy, uh, you, we're going to go through the next couple weeks and it's, you're going to just go through the motions. And as I mentioned before, I think one of the big things as we go through the worksheets uh, during life group, as we go over the Bible study, look at some of the biblical passages, as we're trying to memorize the verses, I think one of the things that we can go through is this thing called the blame game. I don't know about you, but for some of us, you've been feeling this feeling of, okay, I didn't know this, but now I do. And so you're, you're angry because you're thinking about your parents, you're thinking about your siblings, you're thinking about these different people in your life, your exes. And so when you think about all this stuff, you, you start playing the victim. You start blaming them. And that also leads to some of us feeling like I'm the one who offended. And there's this over sense of, of sense of remorse or guilt. And instead of really being set free from this, some of us are struggling. And that's where we are right now. That's why this is not what I wanted to talk about. But just through my prayer and talking with different people, I realized we need to address this. If we're going to end this 50 days of freedom on a note that we want to envision in the beginning. And hopefully it will take that process of God's grace to change us along the way. The reason why the blame game never works is that it always leads to playing the victim. And I'm not trying to highlight some of you or put you on the spot, but if some of you came out with the victim and that's one of your high scores, all I can say to you is unless you really begin to take the responsibility, you are not going to change. It is not only those who are struggling with playing the victim, but it's anybody, regardless of what you have received as your saboteur, one of the things that you have to understand is that without taking of the responsibility, and some of you are thinking, well, how can I take a responsibility? Because they're the ones who hurt me. Well, let me ask you a question or several questions. Were you ever bitter at them? Were you ever angry? Did you ever wish them ill? Did you get bothered that they were getting blessed or they were receiving things that you're like, they don't deserve it? Whenever they're around, did you have a bad attitude? Did you treat them poorly? Are there things that you know you ought to have done as a bare human decency, but you decided you're not going to give them to them because you've been hurt? Yes, they've hurt you. But 
in many ways, unless you take the responsibility for your actions or lack of actions, your attitudes, you're not going to change. That's where the repentance has to come because even though they're the ones who sinned against you, it is in that sin that now you're sinning against God and you're sinning against that person. And I think this is always causing us, and at least a passivity, and this is the thing that causes us to have the lack of motivation to forgive, to even work through the issues as we see it in our lives. When you play the victim and when you blame people that you have no motivation to seek forgiveness nor to change because you rather live with this pain knowing that they did something wrong to you. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to keep on repeating until we get this straight. You are not going to change. I don't care how often you pray. I don't care how much you read the Bible. You will not change until the first step of taking responsibility for your action or inaction is owned up to. Period. Until this day, I have not seen anyone change by playing the victim. So for us to experience the freedom and the journey of this life that is abundant, we got to have to take responsibility for our own actions, for our own attitudes, and we're going to repent and turn to God. So let me give us the one thing. It's very simple. It's simply this, that without taking responsibility, we will sabotage our spirituality. You are literally going to be deadened to your heart where you're not going to be able to be awakened to the things of God. You are going to sabotage your spiritual life and your walk with God if you do not take responsibility for your attitude, your actions, your lack of forgiveness. So I want to talk about this passage. If you have your Bibles, Ezekiel chapter 18, I thought it was a fascinating passage in the Bible where it talks about responsibility. And some of you probably read it before but never thought about it in this way, especially as we're going through the 50 days of freedom. But I pray that it will give you new insights as you think about what God was trying to say through the prophet Ezekiel to the people of Israel. If you look at chapter 18, you will notice that three chapters prior of chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17, the prophet Ezekiel was giving three parables to help Israel to see that they have sinned against God. So here's the prophet Ezekiel telling this Israelite people these stories, these parables, to help them to understand that they have sinned against God. He wanted them to understand the sin and the guilt before a holy God so they could repent. Because only through repentance can we get our relationship with God right. And now in chapter 18, as we will read today, Ezekiel mentions this popular proverb, which I found very fascinating, that was widely used and also it was being circulated in Israel and quoted amongst all the people. And I'll show that to you a little bit later. But first, I want you to understand this proverb that he starts off in chapter 18, verse 1. And as he's giving this proverb, you know what he's going to do in these next some verses? He's going to try to correct this proverb to give insights that even though it might be true to some extent, God is superseding that to show them there's a deeper principle that you need to understand. So let's go ahead and look at Prower, or Ezekiel chapter 18. And I'm going to read this starting from verse 1 through verse 4. 
And as we talk about this, it's just trying to express God's heart, what God desires. So let's read it together. It says this, the word of the Lord came to me. So here's Ezekiel writing this, saying God spoke to him. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repent, uh, repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on age, uh, edge. So this proverb that is in quotes was something that was circulated and a lot of people knew in the land of uh, Israel. Verse 3, as I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Can you imagine? God says, stop using this proverb because it's, it's off. Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the father as well as the souls, soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. I need to pause here and help us to understand what's going on. So you see the proverb. And I think when you read that, like sour grapes, teeth on edge, you know, you, you don't know what it means. So let me translate it for you in a different translation so that you understand what God is trying to say. The New Living Translation says this. The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouth pucker at the taste. Or the message translation, the parents are ate green great apples and the children got the stomach ache. So pretty much some of you are like, I still don't get it. Pastor, like, well, what are they trying to say? The proverb is simply saying this, that the children are being punished for what their parents did. This is something that the Israelite people understood and they knew it through not only this proverb, but through the scriptures. Why? Because the sins of the fathers will be what? Will then affect third and fourth generation. So they understood that even though this generation did not sin with that, whatever that is, that they're being punished for it. And so people are saying, why? Why are we being punished for something that we did not do? In fact, as I was thinking about this, I'm like, man, this problem, it really is, some of, some of it is true. When a parent or parents get in debt, the children suffer. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Some bad choices that the parents make, it affects the children. They might not be able to get certain things or even have food on the table because of the debt. And when they die, then someone has to incur this debt. That's why they're waiting for you to graduate and get a good job so that you can start helping paying off this debt. So it affects you. I was thinking about this and I said, well, when parents get a divorce, the children get hurt. The children, the child gets hurt. You didn't cause it. Some of you think that you did, but it was a decision that your parents made. And some of you in this room know what it feels like not to have a father or not to have a mother. There's an emptiness, and especially you ladies, and I'm going to speak truth to you tonight. There's this longing for this male figure in your life. That's why some of us who don't have good relation with our fathers, you don't have a father because of maybe possibly death or even a divorce. You go from one relation to another. You're longing for a male figure in your life. It affects children. I was thinking about another one. When parents make a bad decision, guess who gets affected? It's the children. So yeah, when the parents eat the grapes, then the kids, they pucker in the state. That's what he's saying. They didn't eat the grapes, sour grapes, but the parents did, but the kids are now puckering in the sourness. 
So this is what they believed. And so they're saying, why are we punished for someone else's sin? But then in verse 3, God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel and he says, this proverb shall be no more. You will not be used. This will not be used by Israel. Why? Because of verse 4. Because each person is responsible for their own sins. I want to read it from the New Living Translation so you can understand what God was trying to say in verse 4. It says this, For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. So now God is flipping this thing around. That's a proverb that they believed in. Because they thought that, oh, my parents sinned and that's why now we're suffering. But what God is saying, listen, I'm the judge and the sins of the parents, they're going to be judged for that. And your sins are going to be judged. So pretty much what he's referring to is that blaming other people for your situation can easily deny your own guilt. This is the wickedness of the human heart. We rather not take personal responsibility before God than to just blame someone because that's easier. It's always easier to blame somebody than to take the responsibility before God of what's going on in your heart and what's going on in your mind. That's why we said without responsibility, you're going to sabotage your spirituality. And for the next 24 verses, which we're not going to read all of it, but the next 24 verses from verse 5 through 28, Ezekiel gives several examples to illustrate the point that God punishes the individual for his or own sin, his or her own sin. Let me highlight these for you, and I'm going to try to summarize this because we don't have time to go through it in detail. The first one is a righteous person will live, verses 5 through 9. So let's just read those first, uh, verse 5 and verse 9. Listen to what it says. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, then he says, walks in my statutes and, will ke and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Now, in between verse 5 and 9, there are all these things. You can look at it later. There are all these things that people might do in their sinfulness. And it's not everything, but it's just a sampling of different sins that the Israelite people were struggling with. And what is he saying? He says, anyone who walks in my statue and keeps my rules or obeys my command, then they will surely live because they're, now they're taking ownership and they're obeying God. So now we, he addresses the righteous person who are trying to live for God. He will live. Now the second group of people is the righteous person's unrighteous son. So here's a righteous person trying to live for God, but they have a son who's unrighteous. Look at verse 10 and 13b. It says this. It says, if, a if he fathers a son who is violent, a sh shedder of blood, who does any of these things, and then he lists all those things in between those verses, similar to what he, he mentioned earlier. Then he says, he has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon, come on, say this, himself. So I, as a righteous father, if I have a son who's unrighteous, then if he does all these things, that sin is upon him, not on me. The third thing is an unrighteous person who has a righteous son. So I'm unrighteous, but I have a son who's righteous. 
Verse 14 and verse 19. Listen to what it says. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins of his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. And he lists all those sins again. And then in verse 19 he says, Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statue, he shall surely live. So once again, he's attacking or he's addressing the idea that says if the father who is unrighteous sins, then the son will be affected. But now God is saying if the unrighteous father sins against me, he will be punished. But then the righteous son will now live. Here is two more. Is it what number are we at? Number number we're at number four now. Am I correct? Yeah, number four. A righteous person who becomes unrighteous. That means that at one time I was righteous, trying to live for God, and then slowly I drift away and I become unrighteous. Look at these two verses, 24 and 26. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. And begins to list some of those things. And then in verse 26, it says, When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. So here you are. You see God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. You could be righteous. You're obeying God, loving God, and you slowly drift away. And you turn away from God. Then you will be punished for that. And the last group that he addresses is an unrighteous person who turns righteous. Verse 21 through 23 and verse 27 through 28. Listen to what it says here. But if a wicked person turns away from his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Verse 27. Again, when a wicked person turns from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he, sh uh, he shall save his life because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. So he dresses these five groups of people. And just a way of just review quickly, what does he say? A righteous person will live because he's obeying God. The second group is a righteous person who has an unrighteous son. That the unrighteous son will be punished for his sins and the righteous person will live because he obeyed God. The third group of people is the unrighteous person's who has a righteous son. So you may be unrighteous, but you have a son that's righteous. You will be punished for your sins, but the son will live. The fourth group, a righteous person who becomes unrighteous, that you became righteous at one time by obeying the law, but then you drifted away and you start disobeying. He says, you will be punished. The last group, an unrighteous person who becomes righteous. So you might be living in sin, but then somehow the spirit of God convicts you and then you turn to God and you live righteously. It says, you shall live. Now, I want to make sure that we're clear on this. This is the Old Testament. And oftentimes it seems like there is no sense of grace. It almost promotes a works mindset. By doing all these righteous stuff, then you shall live. But if you do all these wrong things, then you will die. So one of the things you have to understand, this is the reason why even in the Old Testament, 
it was pointing to and longing for the Savior. These five examples point clearly to verse 20 and through 25. These are the two verses I want you to focus in on as we're talking about we have to take responsibility for our own spirituality. It says this in verse 20 and 25, which I did not read. It says this, the person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. In verse 25, yet you say the Lord isn't doing what's right. Listen to me, O people of Israel. Am I the one not doing what's right or is it you? And the reason why this is important, if we want to use these two verses to summarize, is pretty much saying every single person is responsible for their action. Yes, your mother sinned against you. Yes, your father sinned against you. Yes, your cousin sinned against you. Yes, your uncle sinned against you. Yes, your sibling sinned against you. And for that, God will deal with. But how about you? That bitterness, that anger, that passivity, the coldness, that you fail to love God and love people. So after giving this correct perspective of this old proverb, which he stated in verse 1, Ezekiel now gives a challenge. The challenge is God was urging the people to repent so that they will not be punished for their unrighteousness and their wicked ways. The reason why this is important is because all the prophets understood, though your sins are great, if you will humble yourself and confess and turn to God, He will not only forgive you, but He will purify you. That's why even the prophet Isaiah, he was asking the people, come, let us reason together. Though your sin is like scarlet, God will make it white as snow. Even Jeremiah quoted the same proverb because it was widely used. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 29 through 30. I'm going to read it for us. Listen very carefully to some of the similarities to the Ezekiel. The people will no longer quote this proverb. The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. All people will die for their own sins. Those who eat the sour grapes will be the ones whose mouth will pucker. The powerful thing about Jeremiah, even Ezekiel, is that they are talking about the Messiah that is to come. That the sins of the fathers that goes on from the third and fourth generation, it can only be broken through this Messiah who will come. And because when the Messiah comes, every person will have to stand before this Messiah and give an account of their lives. That's why the Jewish people long for this Messiah to come. That's why even in the New Testament, we see that all these Jewish people thought he was going to be this conquering king. But Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God came as a suffering servant so that he can give us life. In verse 29 through 32, this is where we get the rest of the challenge. And this is what I want to challenge you with. Because without responsibility, you and I, we are going to sabotage our spirituality. 
in verse 30, 29 through 32. Let's read it together. It says this, Yet the house of the Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquities be your ruin. Cast away from all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God tells his people to do what? To repent and turn away from your rebellion. In verse 31, you, when you read this first, it sounds really weird because it says that you, in a sense, you have to make your own new heart. You have to make your new spirit. But you and I know that we cannot make a new heart. We cannot make a new spirit. How many of you have tried to change? How many of you have tried to stop sinning and you cannot? That's the point. You cannot. That's why you need a Savior. This is the reason why we have to believe that it is the work of God in your life. And, and, and this is important for you to understand. He, how many times does He speak to you and prompts you and moves you and gives you opportunities so that you can repent and turn so you can live? But what happens? God will never force you. But He will lead you, but He will never force you. So therefore, we have the responsibility as we see the Spirit of God moving in us, then we have to respond to Him. Listen to what the Living Bible says, and I think this is a better translation so that you can understand this. It says, put them behind you and what? Come on, say this. Receive a new heart and a new spirit. It, you got to receive it. It's a work of God. The voice translation says this. Say that first word. Acquire a new heart and a new spirit. It's something that you get, something that you cannot earn or you cannot try to work for, but you acquire it by grace. And the powerful part of this whole story is that later on in Ezekiel chapter 37, or excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 36, starting from verse 22 to 27, you will see towards the end of the book, even though right here in chapter 18, he says that you have to make a new heart, make a new uh, spirit. In verse 30, chapter 36, verse 22 to 37, uh, 27, you'll see he now clarifies what it is that the Holy Spirit is going to do. I want you to read this passage, and every single time you see the yellow, I want you to say it loud with some conviction. Amen? This is God speaking, and he says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, the say the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Let me just stop here. I've said it many times, and I'll keep on saying it. It's not about you. Everyone say, it's not about me. Come on. When God blesses, when God works, when God heals, when he does anything, it's not for your sake. It's for the sake of his holy name. When God disciplines, it's for the sake of his holy name. When God opens up opportunities and doors, it's for his holy name. Somehow we got it all wrong in our generation where we make everything about ourselves. It's not about you. That's one of the problems why you're stuck because you make it everything about yourself. It's for his holy name. 
that he's going to act, that he's going to do something. It's not because he, yes, he loves you. Yes, he cares for you. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is for his glory. So when he does love you, when he does forgive you, when he does things, it's not because of you and for you alone, but it's for his glory, for his holy name. And what is he going to do? It says, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Can you imagine? You have, def you have defamed my name, but still I'm going to act. That's his grace. And then what the and, come on, say this. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which have been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your righteousness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and... I will give you what? You don't have to make it. You don't have to work for it. God says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. What I just read for you in this passage and what we read together is a demonstration of grace that you do not deserve, that I do not deserve. It's what he does. But once again, he will never force you. As he does things in your life, you need to then take responsibility and respond. Respond in humility, respond in repentance, respond in surrender, respond in letting go, respond in maybe approaching that person and asking for forgiveness. Until you do this, you will not experience freedom. That's why I said you are your worst enemy. You are the saboteur of the destiny that God has for you. That's why you got to repent. That's why you got to stop going in that same direction. Yes, you will get triggered by your parents' words. Yes, you will get triggered by other things. Trust me, you will continue to get tr triggered for the rest of your life. But the question is, how are you responding? If you respond the same way you responded five years ago, ten years ago, you're not changing. I don't care how holy you think you are, you're not. I don't care how much Bible you know or how much you pray, how many life groups that you haven't missed, it doesn't matter. If you respond the same way that you responded from the moment you experienced that to now where you are now, then that just shows that your heart has not been changed. You're holding on to it. You're not taking responsibility. You're playing the victim. You're blaming other people. I'm not condoning their behavior. I'm not condoning their sin. Yes, they have sinned against you. And that's what you have to surrender to God to allow Him to heal you. But you got to do your part to release them, forgive them, love them. You get a glimpse of God's heart in verse 32 where He says, His heart is for the sinful people. 
God could have destroyed the people because of their disobedience. But it says his heart breaks that his children turned away. That's why he says, for I have no pleasure in death of anyone. And that reminds us of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is what? Come on, say this. Patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what he wants. He's being patient. He hasn't destroyed you. He hasn't crushed you to the point of death because he's being patient and waiting for you to repent and turn back to him. That's why the message translation of that same verse says this. He is restraining himself. Oh, what a, what a thought. The God of the universe. He didn't need the web telescope. He already sees all of the universe. He's restraining himself on account of you. Holding back the end because he what, doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone what? Space and time to change. That's what he's doing. That's his grace. Right now, this is a space for you to change. He's been patient with you for all these years. That's the time that he's giving you so that you can change by his grace. But once again, are you going to take the responsibility to say, I need to repent? I want to use this space. I want to use this time. God, I want to come before you. Humble myself. That's why God commands us to what? He says, turn and live at the last phrase. The word or the phrase to turn means to repent. When you study that word, to turn means to repent. So without responsibility, we'll sabotage our spirituality. That's the one thing as we've been talking about. I pray that tonight we're going to take responsibility for our own attitudes, our own emotions, our own feelings and thoughts. Let's take responsibility for the things that we could take responsibility for. Because we don't want to sabotage the spiritual work that God is trying to do in you and in our church. So tonight, I want to create some space for us to do that, to come before God, to repent. And sometimes repentance, it has a negative connotation, but I'm telling you right now, we should be rejoicing when we think about repentance. Because we're turning back to God to the very thing that is so good and so awesome and His love and His forgiveness. Why is that bad? It's just that we, our egos get hurt because we have to confess we're wrong. We have to confess in our pride that we've turned away. But to think that to turn back to God, the very place and the very person that we worship, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's the best thing we could ever do. That's why tonight I want us to remember the four R's of transformation. You remember that? We've been talking about this in our church all the time. And let me give you a little genesis of how we came up with the four R's of transformation. We've been doing this for a very long time. We've been counseling people for thousands of hours. And what we did was we just kind of pulled back and we said, you know what? What caused a person A and a person B? Two people to genuinely change or not to change. That's what we did. We just kind of looked at different people who've experienced deep transformation. And then we looked at people who experienced the same thing, but they haven't really changed. 
And when, when we began to kind of write it down, we realized because there was a lack of realization. Realization of who God was, realization of who they were. And so what began to happen was that some of them were unaware. It was like that piece of food that was stuck in between their teeth and no one told them. It was like them with their zipper open and no one told them. It was like they smell, you know, when they do laundry, that nasty smell. No one loved them enough to say, hey, bro, I think you might have to uh, get a dehumidifier or get a dryer because it smells. Everyone's going to walk away from you, man. Pastor, it's so mean. No, it's not because I love them. I don't want people to walk away from them. I don't want them to have a bad rumor and say, oh, my God, that guy smells. See, some of you, because you're so scared because someone's going to speak the truth to you and you just settle for where you are and you haven't changed for years. Some of you are so insecure that if someone brings up something, your whole world is collapsing because that shows that you love yourself more than God and other people because if you really love God and other people, think about this for a moment. You don't want to keep on moving in that direction. Why? Because it's hurting others. You rub people the wrong way. People don't want to be around you. How are you going to be a witness? And some of you are okay with that. And I'm telling you why. I'm asking you, why are you okay with that? If you love Jesus and you know that he loves you, he has a purpose and a plan for you, how can you be okay with that? I will be like, come on, tell me. I want to change. I want to become more like Jesus. Tell me the hard things. But do it in a loving way. But tell me the hard things. Because I love Jesus more than I love myself. I love his mission. I love his glory more than I love myself and my own pride and my own insecurity. The things I'm trying to cover up. So here are two people. And the person who begins to realize who God is and who they are in Christ and the issues of their lives. That leads to the next step, which is repentance. You cannot repent of things that you don't realize. That's why once you come to the realization, I am so sinful, but yet I am so loved by God in spite of that. You think about the cross, you think about what that means and humbles you. And then you realize, God, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against other people. I haven't taken responsibility. I began to blame other people. I've been playing the victim for all these years and no wonder I haven't changed. And you repent of that. You turn back to God, to his word, to his truth. That leads to the third step, which is what? Receive. You receive his mercy. You receive his grace. You receive his forgiveness. Not because you deserve it, but because he is gracious. He is forgiving. He is accepting. He is loving. And you just receive it by faith. You got to receive it by faith. You don't feel like you're being forgiven. You don't feel like you're being loved but you got to do it by faith. I believe you love. This is what your word says. That nothing will separate me from the love of God. Neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I believe it, Lord. It's hard to feel it, but I believe it. As you receive it by faith, God begins to do something because only he can do it, give you a new heart. He can only give you a new spirit. And then what do you do? In that humility and great gratitude and thankfulness, you recommit to say, God, I recommit to following you. I recommit to loving you. I recommit to loving people. I recommit to living in holiness. I recommit to choosing you above everything else. 
And guess what? This is not one-time thing. Wouldn't it be awesome if you just take one shower in one year and you're clean for the rest of your, that whole year? Man, we'll, we'll save the world. Water, pollution, detergent, we'll save the world. Don't lift up your hands because we're going to be judging you, okay? I'm going to judge you. How many of you guys take two or three showers? Now, if you come from a country that's a little bit south from here, some of you know that you take two showers, minimally. I knew guys who took three showers, morning, afternoon, and then the evening. Water waster. <laughs> you wash yourself because you get dirty. You cleanse yourself because you get sweaty. In the same way, we repeat this process again and again and again because we need constant transforming. That's why in 2 Corinthians, what is it say? We're being transformed into His image, into more of His likeness from glory to glory. Can I get a good amen to that? We're being, we're being transformed. We're being changed from glory to glory every day as we realize, repent, receive, and recommit. We do it again, and we realize, and we receive, repent, and receive, and then recommit. We do it again. And the more you keep on doing this, you're going to become more like Jesus Christ because you have taken ownership and responsibility for your actions, your attitudes, and so that you will not sabotage your spirituality. Oh Lord, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus that every single person here, that we will begin to understand the responsibility that we have to own up to what we can own up to. Lord, people have hurt us and some of us, we have hurt other people. And some of us have justified it. Some of us have brushed it away. Some of us have blamed others. But God, we want to take responsibility for the things in our lives that has affected us and affected our relationships and affected things around us. And we're asking you, Lord God, by your grace, you will help us to address the saboteurs in our lives that sabotage the very thing that you have for us. We want our spiritual life to be flourishing and growing. I just pray in the name of Jesus for every single person here. In the sound of my voice, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will convict us. Give us this new heart. Give us this new spirit so that we will stop, Lord, blaming and stop being passive. But God, we want to be active and to say, God, we want more of you. We repent, Lord. I'm going to invite us at this time, before we do anything else, can we just focus on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross, bore its shame, so that we may have eternal life, Let's think about this Jesus and all that he has done. And what I want you to do before we do anything else is as you ponder, pause, and just gaze upon this cross, I want you then begin to understand by his grace, may he illuminate it to you. May he show you his love for you. 
May He show you what He is offering through the cross. Forgiveness, acceptance, belonging. Whatever it is that's a longing in your heart, it is through Jesus Christ. And then I want you to convert those thoughts into prayers of thanksgiving. Let's just praise Him. Let's just thank Him. The things that we don't deserve that He has given freely. Things that we do deserve, which is hell, wrath, punishment. He has restrained Himself. He has provided a way so that we don't experience those things. Let's turn our hearts towards God, to the cross, and just fill our hearts with thanksgiving. Can I ask us to do that? I want to give you some space just to focus on the cross and to convert those things, thoughts, into prayers of thanksgiving for the next several minutes. We want to do that before we do anything else. Come on, church, let's spend that time. Can we do that right now? Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.